Welcome to the Indian Silicon Valley podcast. I'm your host Jibraj and on this podcast I speak with founders, investors and domain experts from the Indian Valley trying to understand the art of building a legendary company. In this episode I speak with Anurag Jain, co-founder and CEO of Club. Club is India's leading revenue-based financing company championing the cause for RBF in the ecosystem. Started in 2020 by two experienced operators, Club identified the white space which was the lack of a revenue-based financing market in India, especially with regards to growth capital for consumer brands in the country. The rest is history in the making and to decode how far they have come, I have an immersive conversation with Anurag, its CEO. Through the conversation, we uncover what RBF means, how Club underwrites risks, the diverse talent required to build a leading business in RBF, and finally understand the nuances that make repayment successful in this business. As our ecosystem matures, alternative ways of funding are going to become even more prevalent, which is why this episode does a phenomenal job at telling us more about RBF and how Club is leading the charge for it. I hope you find it as insightful as I did, but before we get started, here is a quick word about our sponsor. This episode of the Indian Silicon Valley podcast is presented by Stride Ventures, which is one of India's leading venture debt funds becoming synonymous with innovative startup financing in India. Stride Ventures provides comprehensive solutions going beyond venture debt to cater to distinctive challenges faced by high growth and inherently strong businesses backed by leading institutions. The fund has a portfolio of over 60 plus diversified companies having deployed more than 1500 crore rupees to date. In just over 2 years, Stride Ventures has emerged as the preferred venture debt lender in the Indian ecosystem. To know more about this phenomenal fund, visit strideventures.in. That is spelled as S T R I D E V E N P U R E S . I N. And with that, let's dive in. to the 107th episode of the Indian Silicon Valley podcast with Anurag of Club. Thank you so much Anurag for joining me. Incredibly delighted to be hosting you today. Thank you so much Tomar Jibrajing as well and for having Club on the podcast. Very excited. Glad to have that Anurag and I think uh, it's interesting I mean in a world of so much clutter in a world of uh, 2021 where the financing news was on such a high uh, we have revenue based financing being championed by club and I want to decode much of that with you today but before we jump into what club does and what RBF holds especially in the context of India I'd love to start with your personal journey especially because you've seen both sides of the table right you've been on the extreme of having seen maybe how the investment banks work and what that piece of the pie looks like and also you've been on the venture side where you've seen and lent uh, two businesses right uh, early stage companies and then you've seen the operator journey as well you had to give us a flavor of what all of these multiple dimensions have taught you how do you leverage that uh, wearing the founder hat i think that would be spectacular to get us going sounds like a plan i will try and be uh, succinct with the question but i think this in itself uh, has so many dimensions to it uh, rightfully so each facet brings it uh, with it its own pros and cons but i'll start off with a quick background so i actually started out my career uh, in investment banking but the back story to it is very interesting in that uh, i did my first startup in my undergrad that startup was a massive failure i didn't even know the term startup back then it was just a problem and i was trying to solve the problem I failed 
but I came across the term startup and the term venture capital apart from entrepreneurship. And I said, wow, this is so cool. I get paid to enable other entrepreneurs. And this sounds like a marvelous idea to me. So I was trying to figure out my journey into venture capital right from undergrad. That journey in itself did not culminate, no uh, work experience, no MBA as required in India. And um, I ultimately started out in IT consulting, very short stint. And then in one of my old inboxes, by then back in the day, we used to have multiple inboxes. Uh, One of the companies that I had applied at actually uh, reached out to me. The founding partner was moving out. They were starting out a boutique investment advisory. So it was an investment bank that they were starting off. And they reached out to me if I was interested. So I joined that boutique uh, investment ad- advisory as the first employee. So I was a founding employee, if, I, if you can call it that. And that was a great learning experience because uh, the first wave of entrepreneurship has had just started off. India was always an entrepreneurial market, an entrepreneurial economy. But we were seeing... Uh, Product companies come out of tech services companies. And while the market, the overall TAM was very, very small, at least we had seen this uh, this as, a, as an evolution. And sitting in the middle, understanding what investors want and what uh, uh, or where entrepreneurs are was a very, very telling uh, departure, largely because the TAM was very small. And so the TAM math never held true. Uh, the exits were never there. So by the time I moved into venture capital and I got my break there, the perspective changed very differently for me. For then, you were looking at companies from the other side, while it's called the buy side in itself, and you select companies. I was privileged enough to be able to understand how entrepreneurs think and realize how much I did not know about businesses. Finance is a different thing altogether, but building a business is everything apart from finance as well. And that was a wonderful revelation and realization at uh, DFG, the first venture fund that I was uh, a part of, and then also at Vertex uh, after my grad school, which enabled me to continue to look and evaluate uh, companies and understand how different business models work. By then, I wanted to be an operator and Inmobi gave me the chance. I was uh, faffing around ideas and uh, I was challenged by Naveen to say, why not come and build that idea in-house? Now, as an investment banker or as a VC, you only experiment with ideas. You don't operate on them. You don't build them. And so when given that opportunity, I was actually taken aback. But that entrepreneurial experience was phenomenal. Uh, was a founding team member of uh, Glance and then another uh, acquisition in the US, which we turned into a business in itself. Uh, leading those two businesses actually delivered the operational chops, whatever operational chops that I have today as well. And I think the biggest uh, understanding out of an operational business is about resilience. Uh, we don't speak about that enough, but being a part of Inmobi, which was the last, with the first uh, product unicorn out of India, it teaches you how to just stay at it long enough and keep innovating from there. And that was by far the, the next learning from that stint in itself. So that's sort of a professional journey and the key touch points from each one of them. Got it. I think uh, definitely a marvelous one, which has a lot of diverse sides. And I think that experience definitely shows. I would love to maybe, you know, pick your brain on what were maybe the three things that you've actually taken back as the founder and maybe three things that you had to let go as well, right? Because a lot of people talk about this fresh perspective that you need to have as a founder. Can you maybe, if, if not bracket into a number of things, tell us what the pros and cons of knowing too much or knowing enough as a founder are or before the journey? 
Sure. So uh, a lot of people actually do that. So I'm not going to break it down into 3M3. I'm just going to speak uh, uh, a little more freely here. A lot of people speak about the fact that if you see enough uh, ideas, then you become a better uh, founder. You don't. Uh, <laughs> if you are a VC, you become a better founder. You don't. Um, if you um, work in a startup, you become a better founder. You don't. Ultimately, what makes a better founder, according to me, is um, some sort of an intrinsic motivation towards solving a problem and seeing that as you are solving that problem, some dimension of your uh, inner self is taken care of or a combination thereof. That inner self could be, uh, for a lot of people, it could be power. For a lot of people, it could be money. For a lot of people, it could just be, what am I leaving behind? Uh, so essentially your own value add as a as a human being, if I can call it that, your existential question in itself. A lot of people are driven by this. And if you're able to understand as an entrepreneur, which problem solution statement fits for you, I've seen them to be far more resilient entrepreneurs. Uh, ideas are dime a dozen. I'll be very honest with you. Uh, if not this, we could have done 10,000 other things and probably excelled at it as well. But what is the staying power with a particular idea, especially when the chips are down, uh, when the tide has run out, when even uh, your lieutenants have left the ship, leave aside the rats have left the ship, right? Those are the toughest uh, periods of them all which um, I don't think a lot of founders think about just as yet. They are more into, uh, hey, let's do a, let's become an entrepreneur because it sounds cool. It's uncool. Another uh, story that I have, which I thought was personally telling for me, was with uh, a very senior uh, leader, mentor, guide that I have. And I was telling him that I want to become an entrepreneur. Here's my idea. He challenged me saying, um, Anurag, everything's great. But uh, you need to think about the idea that you're going to work on for the next 20, even 30 years. Don't think of it as an idea for the next five to seven years. It will not work. You have to be in this game very, very long. And then you will have the ability to stick out when the problems become much harder in itself. I thought that was a very interesting thought experiment for me. I was thinking, oh, five to seven years, that's the average life of a a startup in itself and then you figure out a journey when you say 20 30 years it just forces you to think very differently and forces you to build very very differently the the other thing that i think is very important is uh, humility a lot of uh, founders especially with uh, upturns become uh, arrogant and with downturns realize that there is something called humility it's not something that can be taught i mean of course market forces change uh, your demeanor a little bit, but intrinsically you have to know that you don't know enough and you have to depend and rely on more people, essentially a team uh, around you that is believing in you to be able to build and deliver uh, your vision. If, if people sniff out that you are two-sided, two-faced uh, in itself, it doesn't really last very long. Uh, they might be in there for some period of time, but they will leave you out. So I, I do think humility becomes an, an interesting dimension to have and to retain more importantly, because the journey is hard as hell and might as well just be with a set of people who want to be with you and vice versa. Those would be some that come out of my mind. 
No, that's fabulous. I think uh, very important to echo some of the non-glamorous aspects of starting up. And I uh, really appreciate the candidacy. Thank you so much, Anurag, for outlining that. But I think uh, this was important to highlight because it gives us context to uh, where you're coming from. And I think uh, going to the next dimension of the conversation, which is, of course, club and revenue-based financing, how you're disrupting the model in and of itself. I'd love to maybe, you know, understand uh, why we all recognize the importance of non-dilutive capital. Uh, talk to us about what you saw differently and why maybe 2020 was the right time to get this going, right? Uh, amongst all of the things that were happening in the ecosystem, 2021 being the best year for Indian startups. Uh, tell us what you saw differently, perhaps, and what was the unique insight, even with RBF that you had. And if you can give us a purview of, okay, this was this was how we perceived it and this is how we got going. I think that would be a great uh, ringside view of what the ground reality was like and what you saw in, in terms of the unique insight. Sounds like a plan. So I can sort of jump right into the answer itself, but I think it's worthwhile to take a, again, 45 seconds of a backstory into how club got started out in itself, because by the time you get to the end output, uh, sometimes people miss out on the, on the backstory in itself. And, uh, we're big believers that backstories have a lot of, uh, nuance to it itself. We call it a concept market fit. We always speak about product market fit, but sometimes there are, there's something called a concept market fit is there in that you 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 have a certain thesis, but do you have a market fitment of the thesis, uh, in itself? And uh, that requires a fair bit of validation uh, in itself. We utilize fancy words like pivots, uh, but pivots happen after product market fit, I'd argue. Before that, you're just throwing, throwing multiple darts and seeing which one sticks. We started out as a consumer brand. Clubs, the little word also started out as a consumer brand. So we were trying to build something very different. And we were speaking with multiple founders, uh, entrepreneurs, management teams, trying to figure out what works, what doesn't work. We were pitching a different product altogether as a consumer brand. And every single time, every single conversation, people came back saying, sure, you will do this, but how will you scale? Because there's no capital. So you can build something, it'll be a great passion project, but you'll never be able to scale. And fundamentally, my co-founder and I, we can't operate like that. It's just not designed. Our DNA is not designed for that. And we took home the question uh, very deeply because we are ultimately finance people. And we were like, this doesn't sound right. Why are good businesses, good products, good founding teams, good revenue, good margins not valued in the market? It just doesn't make sense. And so this was a pet peeve that we had had during our investment banking days, uh, during our venture capital days as well. So we've seen this as a consistent problem. So it hit home very, very hard. Around the same period of time, we came across trying to figure out since for our own uh, startup uh, or consumer brand, we came across the term revenue-based financing for SaaS businesses. And literally we had an aha moment saying, hang on, why SaaS? Why not consumer? Why not any other sector? largely because demonetization has happened on one side. So the economy is going digital. GST has happened, which is the second big shift in itself in that uh, the market will be forced uh, to have more sanity and sanctity of data in itself. And last but not the least, there were pushes happening overall with UPI, with other frameworks in place, such that the economy will become more digital in itself. So we could easily extrapolate and say in saying that to fit together in itself, 
that's when we said okay you know what consumer brand bad idea why don't we do uh, revenue based financing for other businesses in itself it's in our sweet spot there was nothing to do with 2020 in itself it was just a time when i was exiting uh, in mobi and i wanted to do something my co-founder and i we tried a startup nearly 13 years back so we've been friends and we knew we will do another startup next time around and so the timing was right but the market dna was also right and ripe for it now the unique insight which is an interesting insight is that while we were doing this and these are days of re- research right it's concept market fitment we didn't understand and know and research the 800 pound gorilla in the market in the us market at that point in time so there's a company called clearco uh, which uh, started out revenue based financing so revenue based financing as a concept has been in the system for years but they became large and our research was so shoddy that we had no idea about the company right so our unique insight if there is one is that you don't have to just copy a western model and apply that to the indian or the asian context because we did not understand this model we were building it very grounds up we were uh, thinking about what are the challenges here in the india market what do uh, capital partners want people who want to deploy the capital what do brands want when they want to take in capital what are their nuances their needs in itself those were the insights that we then translated and applied into a platform concept for revenue based financing but the unique insight there is not that it's a platform for model for revenue based financing but the fact that we had done shoddy research and sometimes you just have to be first principles about solving a problem that would be absolutely i think a bunch of interesting things there i i really love the framework concept market fitment i think that's something that i'm going to use going ahead and ask entrepreneurs more about uh, but also the fact that sometimes naivety helps and sometimes that forces you to think ground up and uh, you know build things from the very very bottom and originally so i think that's so very interesting you don't have to know everything to get started you just have to have that interesting insight so love to echo that i think going to the next phase so once you had this thesis once you understood okay this is a definitive requirement what were some of the next steps right because i'm guessing that by founders are familiar with non dilutive capital they are not still as aware or as it comes across this is not it does not seem to be spoken of as much as it should be because while equity financing is as celebrated as it is and it definitely helps companies grow it comes at the cost of founders equity right talk to us more about when a push came to shove what was the zero to one like for club how receptive were the early brands like what was the gtm strategy like and how did you build out the zero to one phase of club sure again interesting insights there also our zero to one actually is fascinating because we were doing our pilots and covid hit so literally our first pilot was uh September 2019 second pilot was february of 2020 march was going to be the big month and then everything stops and we are caught dead in the tracks now advantages we had money in the bank we had a few good people we had uh, a thesis in itself but we had no market and as a platform the response that we got was both sides will actually capsize and so platform models were uh, Uh, even looked down upon in fact i still recall one investor said why don't you guys do edtech at that point in time this is one of those pivotal moments where you go back to the problem and you say is this problem meaningful enough that we're going to stick it out 
and we we actually shita and i and, and we were speaking virtually back then you know you were uh, this was lockdown one and so we were speaking virtually and saying you know what this is what we started out to do we built out our careers we want to do this we will do this uh, in itself so all said and done uh, covid was one of the best things that happened for us and i don't mean it in a bad way of course it had a deep impact on people's lives careers livelihoods and so i'm not at all uh, trivializing the impact but for us as a business model the the impact of external ex- external externalities on revenue became very clear to people that there is nothing called consistency of revenue your revenue can actually crash and you still don't have business models that are able to absorb that underlying risk in itself in fact a lot of businesses have seasonality cyclicality in itself and none of that is absorbed by a lot of products so r021 was uh, actually born out of uh, covid where businesses were going through rough patches but also receptive of the fact that uh, there are going to be revenue shocks and they need the product that is able to absorb the revenue shocks in itself and so um, like any other new product we had a fair bit of explaining to do i'd still argue we we have a a lot more explaining to do as well uh, as you rightly said equity is uh, celebrated and we seem to devalue equity up until later rounds speak with any unicorn founder speak with any sunicorn founder or whatever it is called in itself and they would say hey hang on uh, my equity is precious if given a chance i would roll back something do something slightly differently the media narrative is also such that we uh, we consistently speak about this company raised that much uh, round we don't speak about the fact that some company hit a revenue milestone or a profitability milestone itself right so the entire narrative is lopsided against it's okay it's the maturity of the market in itself at least we are celebrating entrepreneurship at least we are celebrating uh, equity investment rounds i've seen the years when we even didn't do that so it's definitely evolution we are big believers that just like venture debt has become in vogue revenue based financing is going to come in vogue far faster in itself i'd argue that we don't even have as much resistance as we faced uh, even a few quarters back in itself so our go to market has been uh, fairly simple in that there are enough more founders who understand that it is not just equity but smart layering of different kinds of financing options to create their overall mix those are our best converters they understand that there is always a cost of capital associated be it your equity uh, be it the cost of uh, capital in terms of rate of interest that you're fi- uh, financing and nothing comes free nothing comes free and so uh, those are our initial converts we focus on them a lot and uh, we are now seeing that larger businesses larger companies unicorns also now want to explore revenue based financing got it got it no i think that's super interesting and definitely uh, you need to have undergone that journey and have those you know externalities in your business as well but also correlating it with how it developed the macro environment and how you captured it i think this is super interesting and i have a bunch of questions around maybe the underwriting process subsequently what you do to get uh, you know revenue based financing to a company but taking a step back and maybe getting a one on one from you if you had to very plainly let us know that okay this is an xyz brand and this is 
uh, these are the options of capital. Why should they choose club? If you can maybe just give us a persona check and maybe a method check so that uh, the concept in and of itself is extremely evidently clear. I think then we can go on to maybe some of the other final nuances. Sounds like a plan. I'll do the reverse way. I'll speak about what revenue-based financing is first and then get down to what are the different options in itself. Revenue-based financing is a dead simple concept, which is we give capital to companies and take back returns as a pre-agreed revenue share every month. No equity dilution, no warrants, no fixed EMIs, no nothing. Either this is the percentage of revenue, whatever revenue you make, we take a percentage of it and we utilize that to service the returns. That's it. As simple as that, as complicated as that. I would argue revenue-based financing has existed in Indian traditional markets far longer than even debt. EMIs is a very new concept. I'm saying new in a very different way, sure, 40 years or so. But if you had to go back into traditional markets in itself, traditional markets were very simple. I give you 100 bucks, I will take 115 from you. Okay, you could, if you have a good month or if you have a good season, give me higher. If you have a lean month, lean season, give me lower. It was always like this in traditional markets. Nothing has changed. We have platformized it in itself. Why should a founder choose it? There is no perfect set. So a lot of uh, narrative was built around RBF is for D2C brands. RBF, revenue-based financing, is for consumer businesses, SaaS businesses. It doesn't matter. Revenue-based financing is for all businesses that generate revenue. The underlying requirement is there should be some predictability of revenue that can be modeled up. As long as some predictability of revenue can be modeled out, we can create a solution for them because there are limitations on what all we can do today. I'm not claiming that we are perfect. We are a startup. But fundamentally, because we started out with a different mission altogether, our uh, reason for building club, which we'll touch later, uh, hopefully, our reason for doing it is different. We don't seem to restrict ourselves saying, you can only do this. This is the right kind of company, so on and so forth. Of the businesses in itself, the options are very, very simple. If you are getting anything free, take it, take it. Actually, the biggest free thing that, uh, that companies get that they don't seem to value a lot is revenue that is coming from the customer and the profits. Sure, we say cost of goods sold and everything, but I'd argue that that is the core business in itself. That is the true free capital that is coming to them and unencumbered in itself. Beyond that, it then varies. If you are getting uh, equity capital by the gazillions in itself, go for it. If you think that uh, you know it's coming in at the right valuation, go for it. Why not? Uh, know that the party stops at some given point in time. If you're getting bank debt in a very, very simple manner, I can assure you that is much cheaper than revenue-based financing any given day. If you're getting some semi-financing options, you should go for that also, though limited in quantum. And then you should also explore uh, venture debt and revenue-based financing and a few other concepts. Now, I said revenue-based financing last does not mean that it is the bottom of the tie. All I'm saying is look at all options. No single option is going to be sufficient. In fact, the way we run club, leave aside anything else, we keep our equity money in the bank and we run our business on debt. And now that the market has turned against, all investors are saying, uh, hey, aren't you raising capital? We're like, no, nah, we aren't. We are actually just sitting tight because we want to see this over or uh, we want to at least see the worst of the face over, if nothing else. 
So um, that's sort of a quick rundown about what are the different options that a founder can consider. Got it. No, I think that's super helpful. And I think it lays down the 101 really, really well. And as you mentioned, I think multiple options exist. The insight there is being aware of all options and then taking a more calculated decision. The other part that I caught is, you know, some sort of predictable revenue when it comes to RBF. And that's what I want to touch with what club is building out maybe in, in a slight more detail, right? Uh, the fact that underwriting businesses, especially startups, which may not have as predictable revenue and thus are not serviceable by the larger banks or institutions is an opportunity in and of itself. Can you maybe help us understand the underwriting process and how do you maybe map some of these flexible or rather diverse companies which have different matrices, yet you have to standardize some amount of things, right? So uh, the ball is in your court, but if you can take us through how do you determine which company to go for and how much to finance them, that being the simple problem statement, if you can give us a purview of that, I think that'll be very, very helpful. Sure. Again, I'll, I'll not go down into a lot of nuances, but at least let me try and cover uh, the philosophy of it all. Philosophically, we don't believe there is a one size fit all approach. That's a starting point for us. Companies are different. Companies have different scale and size. They have different requirements at different points in time. The ability of a capital partner to be able to customize to those requirements in a runtime is going to truly determine uh, who's going to be a long-term partner. So things like quantum of capital, cost of capital, speed of capital, how quickly can you get capital to a company in itself? Flexibility and scalability of capital is becoming very, very interesting and important. For us, this underlying thought process, we always believe that there needs to be there need to be different kinds of capital partners who are able to take on different kinds of risk return spectrums on the platform. Now, ultimately, Finance 101, there is a commensurate risk. For every risk, there is a certain return that you can expect. So we are in the business of pricing risk and expecting a certain return against that risk through another pool of capital. So we actually said that no pool of capital is actually diverse enough to say that we will solve all problems of all businesses. And hence, we took on a very platform approach, day minus one, uh, philosophically. Now, what we do in the underwriting process is um, in a simple layman uh, way of explaining, there are four steps in itself. What we are trying to understand is the revenue of a company, but we are trying to understand the revenue of the company across multiple dimensions, which includes uh, the trackability of the revenue. Can we track that revenue in itself? Can we verify that revenue in itself, which is a very interesting Asian Indian problem in itself. You see all sorts of things as well. And the collectability of the revenue, what percentage of that verified revenue can you collect in itself? So these three become the first layer of understanding a business. The second layer in itself then goes down to understanding the business model a little bit better. Basis, the sector and category, there are different ways that you can start standards, uh, standardizing cuts in itself. Now, uh, we typically think B2C or B2B in the VC space, or we think about, hey, this is an ethnic business. This is a, uh, this is a, a, a company which is uh, in the D2C space. Uh, we have all these sectors that we have in the 
FPC business, they are also very high level for us. So those are sectors, but we break it down into categories because within each category, uh, companies react very, very differently in itself. And so we are trying to understand the business model and the cash efficiency of each category such that if a company got $100 or 100 rupees of input capital, what is the probability of it converting into 300 or 400 rupees of output revenue? And of course, law of diminishing returns apply, but we are trying to understand that correlation a lot better. The third step of the process is essentially understanding the risks of the business. Because we are in the our core business's risk uh, uh, assessment, we are trying to rate the company internally across multiple parameters in itself. Lots of parameters that we have, some we have created internally that are proprietary to us, but they help us understand what is the risk associated for a defined tenor. Now, please understand, tenor is a variable in itself. If you are an equity business, in the equity business, tenor is near infinite. You are there for the long term. Uh, unless you're early stage or growth stage, in which case you are having a defined four, seven year time frame. But when you're in, the, in our side of the business, uh, you can look at a business very differently in 15 days versus 36 months, three years, right? So risk changes by the tenor in itself. And so that's a very flexible dial, if you will, that we can work with uh, as we get into the third step of the process. The fourth step of the process is a net output which is understanding the requirements of the company, understanding uh, the risk-driven assessment to come out with output parameters for the business in itself. What is the quantum of capital that we should give this business? What is the tenor of this capital? What should be the uh, cost of capital, which is imputed as the yield and the revenue share in itself? Uh, let me uh, utilize something very simple, which is revenue share. You apply too high a revenue share and the willingness to repay comes down you apply too low a revenue share and you increase your bullet risk in itself. So these are all uh, sort of dials and knobs that you can move around, but that's a simplistic way of describing our under. Got it. I think uh, this is a perfect combination of nuance as well as, I mean, a lot of surface level and good one-on-one knowledge as well. I think it lays down the process uh, very interestingly. And what pops up in my head is actually a question around talent because uh, to build out capabilities that underwrite all of this must require some amount of uh, data back knowledge, some amount of great technical skills, some amount of understanding of financial instruments as well, while retaining the core of being a technology for a startup, right? Uh, talk to us about how have you looked at talent management, perhaps, Anurat, right? Uh, maybe give us a purview of whether or not there are a lot of bankers, whether a lot there are a lot of folks from VC, whether there are folks from you know the startup world who have been there, done that, and have been in the companies that you want to finance and some shape or form. I would love to understand from you how you've built out the team because it looks like such an interesting problem set which can either be bracketed in one archetype or multiple archetypes coming together to solve it. So we'd love to hear from you as to uh, how do you solve for this at Plum? Yeah, you're absolutely spot on in that there is no singular archetype that would be able to solve this problem because there is no past precedent in the market. Because there is no past precedent, you have to apply multiple archetypes in conjunction to be able to solve this problem. So I'll get to the the, the tech uh, product thinking later on. Let's first look at the core in itself since we were talking about underwriting and risk. 
Interestingly, a risk team, which is usually called a credit team or an underwriting team in most SMEs uh, or lend lending companies, our, our team is called a risk and data team, right? So first of all, there is no credit, there is no underwriting. We think of it as risk, first of all. And the risk is married with data. So that's why it's a risk and data team that we've put together. So the archetypes here are very, very interesting in that as someone who has done uh, SME lending before, you have someone who has done uh, VC investing before, you have someone who has done investment banking before, you have someone who has looked at data sets before, you have a CA in the team as well. So you have a bunch of slightly different diverse skill sets that you are fusing together and parameterizing in itself. And that's the, the, the core IP that we have, right? How do you trans, uh, trans, uh, translate fuzzy logic into some sort of a parameterized approach that can be applied at scale in itself? Well, that's one component in itself. The, the true way that we can sort of is uh, to be able to uh, uh, sort of uh, break this down into the other components of uh, the business as well. Uh, the other components of the business is how should we think about the tech product, which is the platform. Now, the platform here is what we would call how do you marry the two sides, which is the supply side and the demand side together on this core risk and data engine. So the supply side are the capital partners, the demand side are the companies that are seeking capital. They need to now marry and operate and run together on this engine. And that's where some other nuances also come into play, which are around uh, structuring, which are around uh, uh, being within the, the purview of what each capital pool can and cannot do as well. So those would be some ways that, uh, that we think about it. And hence, the team has all sorts of archetypes. Uh, we have a bunch of VCs. Uh, we have a bunch of bankers. We have a bunch of entrepreneurs. We have a bunch of ops heavy people who come in from SME lending, SME financing, but ultimately all of them uh, deep down are ones that really care about companies getting capital. Got it. No, I think very interesting. Again, I mean, to be in a position where you get to build out solving for this, what I would love to understand from you is how you maybe, you know, build out culture for such a diverse pool of people and align themselves to look at the problem statement, maybe with in a unique way, but in the mission with one direction, right? Like if you can talk to us about the culture thread that ties this diverse team together, I think that is going to be an interesting piece considering that diverse teams make for great talent, but how do you bound that talent together is one thing that founders definitely think a lot about. Absolutely. And uh, we were equally flummoxed as well when we started out trying to think through how we should or should not uh, do this. In fact, when we were setting up club, we also went down to a bunch of companies. We looked at a bunch of companies uh, trying to understand uh, how, how have they articulated their culture. And there are enough and more great examples out there, enough and more great uh, businesses that have done it. And every time we would look at it, it, it looked like a laundry list, quite honestly. Now, different companies have different takes. They've, of course, tried to uh, make it much more simpler, but it sounded like so many things. It just uh, didn't make any sense to us, quite honestly. As we started introspecting more and more, we realized that we could utilize another framework which echoed our philosophy a lot more clearly. So we utilize a four-year framework 
to describe our cultural tenets. This four-tiered layer, think of it as a pyramid of sorts. Uh, one layer sits on top of the other. And uh, uh, we sort of have built it that way. The foundational block, the base, is what we call uh, the, the block of virtues. Virtues are things that we simply cannot teach. Virtues are intrinsic factors, intrinsic principles that either you have as a professional or you don't. It comes to you as a, a child that is growing up and maturing and uh, no matter of uh, pushing you will change it beyond a certain level. Uh, virtues, I'll just take some examples in it, fire in the belly. Uh, we can't change that for individuals. Humility, uh, intellectual curiosity, uh, we just can't change that. So that becomes the bedrock of uh, our uh, 40 year layer. The next one is what we call our way of working, our wow framework. These are five tenets that we train for as a group. Muscle building, if you will. So we actually spend a lot of time uh, training our teams, training uh, individual professionals uh, and working as a group to be able to build our way of working such that everyone thinks the same way. I'll take some examples here. This includes uh, structured thinking. It includes high attention to detail, uh, extreme ownership. Uh, these are some such uh, values that we over-index on. The layer that sits on top of it is what we would call culture. Uh, there are five principles here. Uh, but interestingly, we realize that uh, while everyone speaks of a North Star, it's actually far more complicated than that. These five principles is about finding balance between two extremes. And so at any given point in time, one has to figure out what is it that we should aspire for? What is it that we are trying to get together, build towards as a group in itself? I'll take an example which, uh, which describes it uh, as well. Thinking big and exit small is one of that uh, cultural uh, tenet. Now, you think big in itself, which is what a lot of companies said, but that in itself doesn't build a great company. You actually have to execute it down to the tiniest detail for it to happen. Uh, you're always sort of in this, in the middle of this, these two spectrums. When should you be thinking big? And when should you be executing down to the smallest detail? You have to figure out where you fall. And so we've created five such tenets which uh, uh, we all aspire to find our balance towards. At the apex of this 40-year layer, at the very top, sits our mission. Everything that we are doing, our virtues, our way of working, our culture, is towards driving this mission, which is to enable growth for love brands. It's as simple as that. It is as complicated as that. All of us believe in this in some form, shape, or manner. Uh, we are trying to assess virtues, we are trying to build muscle for way of working, and we are trying to aspire for some of these um, cultural values while working towards this mission of uh, enabling growth. That is how we've set up our cultural tenets. Awesome. I think I love that pretty much because of, uh, again, there's a sense of uh, 
nuance as well as simplicity in how you've gone about sharing some of these frameworks. And I think there is an evident sense of cognizance and priority for culture, which is evidently clear with your answer. And I think that really stands out. I would love to double click on this very fact and understand from you, Anurag, that, you know, uh, is an emphasis on culture. Does that come from the fact that you have been at other organizations, seen how culture can play a role and thus how important is it at the early stage? Or is it very natural to you as a founder? How do you basically get to the mindset that culture is a priority, especially as an early stage founder? I would love to decode that bit. Sure. Um, I think I've had the benefit and the luxury of seeing uh, a lot of companies up close and personal. When you are a banker, when you are a VC sitting in boardrooms, you start realizing very quickly that the problems are actually not of finance. They are not of capital. The problems are all about people, of people and their thinking, people and their thinking and their ability to work interconnectedly as a team and as a group. So it's literally a whole new twist of uh, solving finance and capital, sure, but how do you get smart people to work together in a cohesive manner? That was the determining factor where companies either did well or didn't do well. So when I went for my grad school, I was one of the only few people, I'd say one of the very, very few people who ended up majoring in an esoteric topic called organizational effectiveness. Uh, No one does that. In most business schools, we either go for finance or strategy or marketing. Uh, No one says organizational effectiveness as a major. But I recognized very early on that um, If you have to build something big and large, you have to solve for how people start working together, how they think and operate as uh, individuals in itself. And that was a very, very interesting problem. It borderlines, uh, even I'd say psychology at some level, it uh, borderlines anthropology, sociology, motivation theories, a a lot of uh, facets of human behavior that come together. And so that was always something that uh, Uh, was clear to us. But as we started building club initially in that concept market fit, up until you're not clear what you want to build, it just takes a few iterations even of culture. So uh, we actually iterated on this thought process a few times over up until this framework worked best for us and it reflected who we want to uh, aspire to be as a group of people working together. It's always work in progress. Anyone who says that uh, a company has good culture or bad culture, I can assure you that uh, these things change. They are very much driven by sentiment as well. But uh, do we know the true North Star? Do we know what are we working towards in the absence of any guidance? That's where it starts coming into play. And that is what we work towards. Awesome. I think that last part perfectly sums it up, at least in the importance of culture and also the initial part of having the recognition that eventually it all boils down to people, failure or success is definitely a lesson to echo. So lovely to hear that. 
I think as we go on to concludery aspects of what has been a phenomenal conversation, I would love to touch upon some of the final pieces of what club does. Now that we've understood, this is how the team is constructed. This is how the culture binds the team together, and this is what the model is. I, I would love if you can maybe shed light on the repayments aspect of it. Right? Uh, we talk a lot about how to underwrite the risk or how to underwrite the revenue flow. But let's say, what is it that you do to ensure that there is a robust repayment cycle, and what are the different things that maybe club has done on that aspect? Uh, would love to know that from you, Anurag. Yeah, and and you're absolutely right. Uh, most people think that lending companies are about uh, <laughs> about the underwriting stack, and people call it the AI stack as well. We've heard stuff like that as well. But but ultimately, according to us, the business is not about giving capital. The business is about taking capital back and building an engine around that. Uh, that's our core IP. If you really ask me, it's not the assessment in itself. Yes, of course, we have applied some smarts there. We continue to evolve. I'm not saying that we're perfect, but we've actually applied a lot of heavy muscle behind our repayment stack, which shows in our numbers as well. Now, without getting into too much detail, ultimately. Uh, a lot of these uh, revenue streams today, uh, because of the same underlying reasons why we got into revenue-based financing, are now digital in nature. Because these revenue streams are digital in nature, uh, there are ways and methodologies by which you can tap into them. Uh, India and Asia tend to be far more complex markets. There is, again, no one-size-fits-all approach. Uh, we've discussed it uh, with unicorns even in the revenue-based financing space in the Western markets, and they don't have to build for the complexity that exists in India and in Asia. Uh, and so our repayment stack is designed to be able to uh, get capital through multiple digital revenue streams at a high frequency, such that it simplifies the life of the founding team and the management team. They don't have to wait for the end of the quarter or end of the month to reconcile cash flows. Uh, we've done it in a quasi-automated manner, uh, which makes it very, very simple. But accounting for all the different kinds of different digital revenue streams that exist in India. This is always, again, work in progress. So we keep working on uh, some of these uh, uh, systems and tools that we are uh, building and uh, we'll continue to innovate uh, on this particular dimension. In fact, uh, some of our repayment figures are very good, largely because of this tech stack that we have built solving for repayments as a core problem. Got it. No, I think, uh, again, love the emphasis, love the fact that there is a lot of foresight to ensuring that this part of the pie completes itself. And I think a lot of enhanced focus. So I think that definitely stands out. Interestingly enough, I mean, from all that I'm hearing, and correct me if I'm wrong, this looks like a business wherein data will eventually become a strong moat because uh, a lot of behavior patterns for some of these companies who raise RBF uh, will be there in terms of, you know, data reliability that uh, club will have the advantage of. Uh, can we get an insight to how important uh, maybe data is in your business? And what are some ancillary things we can maybe expect club to do in the near term, if there are any? I would love to know your insights there, Anurag. Sure. So, um, of course, ultimately, uh, we don't speak out it, but uh, we are a data company. Um, everything that we do is to build greater intelligence towards how to price the risk of a company over a period of time we are able to give them 
uh, or facilitate for them uh, larger quantums of capital at lower costs of capital as well. We will not be able to do that if we don't understand uh, the data better. And so we spend a lot of time uh, understanding uh, and building on our data sets as well. We are uh, adding uh, to our team as well, and we are uh, looking to enhance this uh, in a much, much more deeper manner. For us, uh, going to the second part of your question, the core mission remains the same, which is enabling growth for love brands. So there are some other uh, product solutions that we will be creating that drive more growth to the businesses in itself. We fundamentally believe that um, as more growth goes to the businesses, which implies that more revenue generation happens for these businesses in itself, it de-risks our core financial offering uh, in itself also. Hence, everything that we do is always about figuring out how we can drive more revenue to the brands, to the businesses that we work with, that we partner with. And so those would be the areas where we launch some product solutions in the next few quarters. Lovely. At the core, you are a data company. That's what I'm taking back. Uh, I think as we conclude this conversation, Anuradha, I would love to very quickly focus on some of the qualitative aspects of what it means to be a founder. On the quantitative side, I think we've uncovered a bunch of trade secrets to what makes club what it is. But uh, on the founder side, if you were to give us a ringside view of what this journey has done to you, we can see the tangible scalability of the company, but the people building it scale in ways which are very unique. So if you can maybe tell us that in the short period that club is being built, how has that transformed your journey and what does that mean for you as a founder? I think that would be very wonderful. Sure. When you're um, working with uh, phenomenal people, and, and I must say this, I'm, I'm very privileged to work with uh, phenomenal people at club. It's not just IQ that works in itself. It has to be a fair bit of emotional intelligence as well that needs to be applied uh, when you're dealing with uh, extremely talented uh, professionals. Each one has their own career path trajectory. And um, just having that nuance, that uh, realization that it's not just about hard facts, it's also so much about what we can do for them, with them together, uh, that's very, very different. I'll, I'll sort of digress, but add this here in that uh, digress the, uh, from the question, but we're one of the few companies that our stage, we added a L&D head who does both coaching and mentoring for uh, our team members. And that's something that we very consciously realized uh, as founders that we need to do and that we need to apply. But even this emotional intelligence, I don't think comes up until we are clear about who we are as individuals. So one of the biggest realizations over the last uh, um, few years, few quarters building club is uh, a deeper introspection about who I am, what do I want to do, uh, what do I want to build and why. Uh, those are some of the deeper questions that uh, I've spent a fair bit of time on and uh, that has been a very, very rewarding uh, uh, introspection journey building club lovely i think that's uh so heartening to hear and i think uh, very very candid of you to share in that manner i think as we close out this wonderful conversation i would love to maybe go back to the roots and uh, 
pick your brain on uh, what does it mean to you know as they say get out of bed every morning with the same enthusiasm what is that core motivation for you and maybe mission statement for club that keeps uh, all of you going if we can end with that i think it'll be a great reinforcement of the belief that makes founders and teams successful and uh, will reiterate uh, what's driving the successful club mission so i think uh, that would be a great ending point anurag sounds good i'll i'll, I'll share this uh, with an anecdote uh, when we were uh, researching this particular concept of uh, revenue based financing applied for consumer businesses um i spoke with a founder who's a dear friend and uh, she was building a consumer brand and she had recently shut it down and is that something me that has stuck with me over the years she said if club was around i would not have shut down my startup and i think that to this day gives me goosebumps and i'm having goosebumps as i'm saying this it it is the sole purpose uh because of which we create and we run and we get out of bed every single day how can we enable phenomenal founders phenomenal teams phenomenal products in the market uh to do more how can we ensure that uh, capital becomes uh, an easier problem for them what can we do such that this becomes a simpler problem in itself how can we drive and enable more growth for them which is club's mission and that in itself when you think about it deeply enough is actually very enriching everything that we do impacts local ecosystems uh when we are working with local brands uh not just in tier 1 cities but also in tier 2 tier 3 cities it actually creates uh, uh local jobs it creates a uh, more uh downstream impact in local ecosystems every single brand that does well actually impacts the economy not just through jobs but downstream uh, supply chains as well and if i had to think about it i mean it is just fascinating by the breadth and the depth of businesses that we are able to touch and that we are able to enable and so that's a very very simple but a very very compelling reason to say hey there's more to do <laughs> which is every day for us that that's phenomenal i think just hearing it is just so powerful i can only imagine the energy it provides to the team by contributing to it directly day in day out thank you so much anurag for sharing that and for being so yourself throughout this conversation i think i've absolutely loved every bit of it and taken back a bunch of lessons that can be helpful in building tangible businesses that add on to real value in the country thank you so so much for being on the show this was an absolute pleasure and i hope you enjoyed it as well my pleasure as well jivraj absolutely appreciated the questions and uh, truly enjoyed the conversation thank you so much for having us over awesome with that we come to the end of this conversation thank you so much for tuning in to the episode i really hope you enjoyed it as much as i did if you're finding value with the podcast do follow it on the audio streaming platform of your choice drop in a review and subscribe to our whatsapp newsletter to get all the updates directly on your inbox thanks again i will see you next week for another episode till then i hope you record if you never try you'll never know stay tuned and keep building